Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I'm joined by John McDermott. John, very big welcome to you today. Thank you very much for having me, Amy. It's uh, lovely to be here. And I would like to know what it is that you keep yourself busy doing most days. Oh, good question. I am a planner first, so active planning consultant. According to my workload as of this morning, I've got 45 cases on. I am also a property developer. We're currently in planning on our fourth development site right now. So we've got three and then we got the fourth during COVID. So uh, planning for fourth development site right now. And lo and behold, I'm the planning and heritage director. That's what I've called myself, uh, Heritage England, which is one of our sister development companies. And I'm also an educator. Don't like being called a mentor. Absolutely hate being called a guru. So I'm an educator in planning and development. Uh, and we have a, a, a range of education stuff that we do. Fantastic. So that keeps me busy most of the time. And the rest of the time, what do you get up to then? Oh, I'm, I'm a dad. I'm a father. I'm a, I'm, a, <laughs> I, I, I'm a caregiver. I'm all of that kind of thing. So uh, it's my family that keeps me busy the rest of the time. And, and the rest of the time is very special family time. That's one of the really big drivers in my life. Um, so, it's, so it's being with my sons, being with my wife, and, and, and being a dad and a husband and a father. Perfect. And why is it important for you to do what you're doing most of the day? Because planning makes a difference, to be fair. If you think about the planning world, we are this weird breed of professionals. So we're failed architects or failed engineers or failed whatever. And we as a profession are the i'm going to use the word line of defense let's quote from the rtpi we're the line of defense we're that we're there to make sure the right development goes on the right site at the right time as a planning consultant my job is even more complicated in that i'm promoting the right development on the right site at the right time in any given circumstance but the why is all about good quality development if I can get there, high quality development, because as planners, we make a difference. The, the profession is there to shape places and to influence the human world. And that's what drives you forward when you're a town planner. It's a very thankless task, but once you get it right, it works really well. And you describe yourself as, or, or and fellow planners, as being failed architects, failed engineers, but it takes years to become a planner how can you be failing in anything 
Well, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? The, the, I, when I first started out, when I left school, I wanted to be an engineer, but I wasn't clever enough to be an engineer. So I went into town planning. And we get to mess around in the same sort of fields, as it were. But you're right, it takes years to get to um, the chartered status that is the gold standard. So it's it's two degrees. Presently, it, if you go the quickest course, it's two degrees um, and two years pre and post qualification experience in order to get to what's called the ACP, the Assessment of Professional Competence. And the ACP takes a year. So that gives you an idea. If you, if you run that through, it's about seven years practice and study before you get your initials at the back end of your name. Uh, and they always come last, weirdly, those initials. They're always at the very, very back. And that's easier than becoming an engineer? Um, no. <laughs> no. But I wasn't smart enough to become an engineer. My A-levels are absolutely rubbish. So... It was it was a, a different pathway. Yeah, it's interesting you say you're not smart enough because I've never met anyone more astute in planning. Well, it's kind of you to say. There are others more intelligent than I. I just uh, put myself in a different frame. So there are other more intelligent plan planners out there. I mean, a, a great um, inspiration of mine is a planner called Steve Quartermain, who until very recently, was the chief planning officer for the UK. Um, I even had the benefit of writing to him once when I needed clarification on a particular point, and he wrote back to me, and I was, I was honoured that he wrote back to me. Because normally you get one of his underlings writing back to you, and actually it was Steve that wrote back to me, and that was wonderful. But there are other more intelligent planners out there than I. It's just I put myself in a different frame of reference. So... I am very much trying to promote planning as a profession of worth rather than doing what some of the other planners in the, yeah, again, more intelligent planners than I do, uh, which is sit in higher local, higher local government or higher government offices and influencing the world that way. I, I'm out in the real world, in the world of the real, as I like to call it, and um, dealing with uh, cases on the ground. And something you just mentioned was the right development on the right site at the right time. How do you qualify and quantify those? Good question. So, for example, uh, the right development, that's very much geared by law, by practice, by policy. So we wouldn't, for example, put a residential housing scheme next to an incinerator in an industrial estate. That would be the wrong development on the wrong site. Um, the right development on the right site might be an area of brownfield land in the middle of a residential area that needs regeneration, that needs that push forward. At the right time is very much about when is it when is it, when is it appropriate to bring that development forward or not. A site on a greenfield or in the green belt would not be appropriate if you were just to make a planning application but if you wait you bide your time you play the process out then it would be right when that site has got an allocation it would the site would be mature enough to bring that forward one of the developments we're dealing with as as a development company down in Pembroke Dock is a classic example of that 
the right development on the right side to the right time. The barracks is absolutely the right development. It's the development that the council want to see through consultation with them. That's They've given us the idea. On the right side, it's a historic building that is in desperate need and is the uh, second most vulnerable building in Wales at the right time, bringing that development forward before that building is allowed to degrade any further. So I can see the passion there and I can understand why it's important to you to, to sort of have an effect on the landscape. When will you be sort of happy that you're, you're achieving that goal? Never. Never. Um, I said to, to my wife, Tanya, the other day, I will never win. And she said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I will never win. I'm in a profession where I will never win. I will get close, but I will never win the game. And, and there's a, a few good reasons for that. But fundamentally, it's because um, you're always striving to improve. So I, I was talking to some people earlier today. And they were referring to some of my old models for how to calculate development on site. And I turned around and said, well, that's the old way. We've since refined that idea and we're building a better model for how to do that calculation, for how to get that right. So that it is the right development, the right site, the right time. And when that model's ready, I'll release that model and, and say, well, this is the way I recommend you do it now. And then we'll start that refinement process again. Think about planning is we're always learning and planning is never static. It's never, it's not like, for example, civil engineering, which, which gets to a certain point and then remains still and then gets to a certain point and remains still. Planning is always growing as a profession. It's always learning new ways of doing things and new interpretations. And because we're always learning, always growing, always pushing on, you have to keep your knowledge 100% up to date and you have to keep refining your practice as you go on. Almost like a, it's almost like a surgeon. I'm not going to compare myself to a doctor, a very important person in the world. But it's almost like that surgical approach of, well, this is how we did it, but now we found a new technique and we're going to do this. And now we found a new technique, so now we're going to do this because the techniques get better over time. You know, the surgical techniques of the early 1900s would not be used today because they are the poorer way of doing things in exactly the same way planning or any thought process grows. So you've got iterations and you've got amendments which you're you're seeing coming through but the foundation is quite an old foundation on planning. Yeah it is it's the it's it, it well it's even older than people think so I always refer back to AD 6 the Roman invasion of Britain because that's when planning was properly brought to Britain for the first time. Look at any Roman town and you, and you see arrow straight roads, you see a grid pattern, the same pattern that we use today. If you compare you know, areas of Bath to London, you've got that grid block form, barrier blocks, etc. So planning in this country is, is Roman, it's ancient. And it's been refined over time. The current system we've got is the 47 Act, where development was nationalized formally nationalized and the current act we've got today is broadly similar it's been altered and amended and tweaked and refined but the base level the fact that 
planning permission is required for development under, over, on the land, any material change of use, any works carried out by a builder, the base description is the same. And the base calculation, the planning balance is the same. The system hasn't moved on. It's just got more, I want to say, complicated. And why do you think it hasn't had an overhaul? Primarily because the reasons for the original system still exist today. We haven't evolved it because it still technically works. Why reinvent the wheel? The reason for the 47 Act was to mediate land uh, needs, or mediate the need for development on land, and to deal with the leftovers, essentially, of the Second World War. Basically, London was getting hollowed out. It was becoming a donut city with an empty core because no developer wanted to build in the centre of London. They wanted to build in the suburbs. Places like Highgate and, and Stamford are a really good example of that. The, that would still happen today if we didn't have planning. If we didn't have a system to try and moderate and mediate those principles of right site, right development, right time, you would have developers essentially building what they wanted and where they wanted without any regard to the effect of that. And you would have, I mean, there, there would be uh, urban sprawl between London and Birmingham, for example, a complete urban corridor, because that's how we built pre-planning. That's how we built pre-Greenbelt. We just followed roads. And what are you looking to achieve in, as a planner? I'm, it's always the same thing. I want to make sure that the developments that we promote are quality developments that we can be proud of, not just as a company, but as people, right? I drive past, there's a lovely house development, tiny little thing, single house on a bit of vacant land that I got planning permission for here in Gosport about three years ago. And they've just now got to the point where they're starting work and it's nearly finished, it's beautiful. And at some point in time, I need to do a video on it because it looks stunning. But that was an old garage, literally just a double bay garage that we got planning permission for, for a single home. That single home is gonna be the perfect starter home. It's gonna be this perfect starter home for a, a couple starting out for the first time in a house, not a flat, in a house. It's a one-bedroom house. To do something like that, to bring forward a form of development that makes a real change to someone's life, I think that's powerful. So planners can change people's lives? Planners can influence. But we influence in a way that I hope is positive, granted, I know there are some developers who absolutely hate the planning subspecies, but that is the nature of the game. It is a thankless task. You, you're always in angering someone. You never get it 100% right. Well, I've seen you work and I've seen how you can spot opportunities and, and sort of have that vision. Have you always been a visual person? No, it's learnt. It's learnt. It's... It's 18 years of practice and training to get me here. And 
it's something you have to learn. It's something that junior planners don't have. It's it's not built in. It's you don't get your planning degree and then get planning glasses which give you planning vision. <laughs> you have to learn it. But once you've learnt it, it stays with you forever. And as long as you keep refining your learning, refining those techniques, then it remains relevant forever. It's it's practice and training, Amy. That, mm. That's how it works. And talking of training, you described yourself as an educator earlier. What what is it you're doing educating people? So we do a few things, but we're we're different. Um, the we have a very small workshop group that we run uh, down. Well, at the moment, everything's online. So online using tools like Zoom where we're running through a syllabus of planning related topics and then looking at sites and applying those learnings to those sites. So it's very much a combination of audiovisual and kinesthetic learning. We um, have started to do a series of lectures because we noticed that there's a lot of webinars floating around, a lot of webinars <laughs> floating around. We started getting I don't know about you, but my my social media is inundated with the latest. Come on, my free webinar where I will show you the secrets of this. Okay, so we thought to ourselves, why don't we do something different? Um, we do self-contained lectures, which give people all the information that the lecture promises, and then stops. So it's literally a self-contained bubble. We um, run Property Expert Community Live, which is the new rebranded version of Property Expert, Expert Network that we launched in June 2019. We've moved all of that to an online mode and that's part of our education stuff as well. And then with partners like Whitebox, we assist on their uh, Property Development Secrets Mastermind. Yeah, I was going to say, that must have reduced your travelling now. I mean, that's that must be a great thing for you. <laughs> <laughs> reduced my travelling, but in, it, it, it's... It, it's a balance at the end of the day. I, I literally have just, off the back of, you know, talking to you, I've, I've, I've done a planning clinic with the masterminders this morning and planners question time on our own Facebook group this morning. So Friday is a busy education day for me, which is kind of nice to be fair. And end of the day, Amy, it's all good CPD because not only am I rehearsing the knowledge I've got, but I, whenever I don't know something, I'm diving in and learning it so it's excellent cpd pretty much on a weekly basis and you talk about cpd and that's something that's important for you as a company oh absolutely absolutely we wanted to make sure that we could support not only our own professionals but the people who are looking to be professional developers development is a profession it's people call it being financially free no it's a job it's a profession. It's you it should be treated as such. It's both an art and a science. So we took the time to go and get ourselves CPD credited as a company, so that we can support those professionals. And the next stage of that process, and so now we've been accredited as a company, is to go and get our training packages accredited as well. Because with the CPD provider we've gone with. There are two levels of accreditation. The company is assessed 
as a fit and proper company. And we've had to put together a lot of documentation to help support that process. But then the individual training is assessed then uh, and put forward so the training package is deemed to be fit and proper for CP for whatever amount of CPD credits are awarded by the awarding body. So it's, it's taking what we're doing and moving it from a point of, let's use the term, any other property training company to a property training company with an awarding body behind it that actually awards recognition for carrying out that training. And it was quite interesting because when you joined the Focus on Why Facebook group, you came in and you were like, woohoo, anti-gurus, no anti there's no gurus here. <laughs> Why is it so important for you to celebrate sort of the, the lack of mentors and, and gurus within a space? I, 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 think, I think the word guru is a really interesting one because, as you know, recently, and we've been talking, as you know, recently, I've been accused of being a guru and I was like, don't like that. But just think about that term for a minute. The term is actually comes from Hindi mm-hmm. and it's a, a teacher or a mentor. I think the problem that we have in certainly this space is that there are two different types of, we use the term guru. There are those who are teaching from practice and experience, and there are those who are not. I like to take the view that an anti-guru is someone who is not the norm. So if we assume the norm is someone who doesn't teach from significant practice and experience, then uh, the anti-guru is the opposite of that, matter and anti-matter, guru and anti-guru. So I was very happy to see both a group on Facebook that focuses on the why, because as you know, that's one of my driving forces. The reason we do things is much deeper than just money and profit. The reason we do things is, is very much focused on who we are and our core drivers, our core values. The... So seeing that, but also seeing a group, and again, it's, it's part of what we based our Facebook group on, was, was the principles of the anti-guru, which is no upsell, no flim-flam, just good quality advice that can be substantiated in practice and law. Very simply. So you just led very nicely into who you are and why you do what you do. So who is John McDermott and what are your core values and why do you do what you do? Okay, so <laughs> I, I'm nearly 40, um, albeit I think my mental age is probably a lot less than that. I'm a husband and a father first. Let's deal with that first, because for me, family is first. Family is always first. And I know it, uh, it annoys clients when John has to disappear off to go and do a daddy day. Well, actually, I do a daddy day because I'm also a divorced father. So I divorced my first wife. Uh, well, she divorced me, to be fair, um, a little while ago before I met, before I married Tanya, my, my present wife. And my youngest son, my natural son, Zachary, doesn't live with me. So to have a daddy day with Zachary, because my time with Zach is very controlled, uh, to have a daddy day with Zachary is so important with me that nothing else matters. 
when I'm having a daddy, when I've got a daddy day with Zachary, that's all that matters in my world right now. So work can literally go and uh, I'll use the, the term I use in the phonetics. Let people guess what this means. The world can foxtrot Romeo Oscar. We swear in phonetics in our house because that's great. Better. Um, so family comes first. We're just about to celebrate Tanya's 42nd birthday. And again, we, we're going to go out of our way and do social distancing, family visits and all of that kind of thing because family is so important. But they're a primary driver. And they're what push me on is to give my sons opportunities that I have through one thing or another. And my parents gave me every opportunity I possibly could have. But I always want to do one better. So, to, for example, this uh, last year we bought Jack, who is mad keel on sailing in the Sea Cadets, wants to be, he's a 13-year-old young man who knows exactly what he wants to be in life. I never had that. Um, he wants to be a captain in the Royal Navy of a Type 45 destroyer. That's what he wants. And he's got it all planned out. He knows exactly his route pathway. So as part of supporting that, uh, we bought him a boat. So we bought him a, if people know their sailing boats, we bought him a topper. Designed by exactly the same bloke who bought who who um, designed our little cruiser, and he's got the topper at the sailing club where our cruiser is, and he can he's a member of the sailing club, and we've done all of that for him. Um, I got the ability to take Zachary out for his first cruise on our cruiser this uh, last week, last weekend. And he absolutely loved it. I've got a picture of him on my phone in life jacket, and it's wonderful. But that's family. And family, it was drummed into me by my parents. Family always comes first. Family is everything. Yeah. The, um, they're the thing you leave behind. Because nothing lot, else matters. A lot of people say family come first, but it doesn't always um, sort of manifest. And, and they sort of say, oh, just a minute, or, or I'll be there in a second. And how do you manage to, to really switch off? Uh, well, I have a few things that... A few techniques that I use. Granted, it's difficult. It's even more difficult when you've got things like COVID forcing you to work at home, but we have a few techniques. So I very uh, funnily have two mobile phones. I have one for home and I have one for work. The one for work, it's the rubbish one. <laughs> it's, it's the bulletproof one. But that's because I have a nasty habit of dropping phones on building sites and then I have to go and buy a new phone. The... I make sure I have very dedicated time that everyone knows about. So my out of office is always switched on on my emails. And that tells people who are emailing me when my operational times are. And outside of their operational times, they're going to have to wait. I have very regimented approach to annual leave. So the, the week of annual leave I've got coming up at the end of June is going to be a Email switched off, email switched off on phones, that's it. All that work phone switched off, I'm on annual leave because I've got more important things to be doing. Uh, I need to spend time with the family. And that that's how I try and achieve it. I also maintain an office. So I think it's really important for professionals to have a base. Now, granted, COVID-19 has taught us that we don't have to do that if we don't want to. I'm currently sitting in my son's bedroom. But 
what it also teaches us that is if you don't have that point to go to you don't have that professional environment to segregate life from home then your work-life balance gets shot completely to hell and actually having that work-life balance that clear separation between your professional and your personal life i think is really quite critical i learned that a long time ago and it's a lesson i've maintained ever since and it's a great value to take into a company where you advocate that with your staff as well yeah absolutely we have a few rules in 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 tpx to maintain balance because you can imagine there's a lot of demands on planner time uh, especially with us being referred by so many people so many times Uh, we have the one job a day rule so you allocate time in your diary for one job per day and nothing else and that job gets your focus on that day it's amazing how well that works because not only does it change the relationship between consultant and client the consultant isn't battering you over a course of a week and is in is in is in is in you you tell the client it's going to go in on this day that is when i'm doing your piece of work but the other thing it does is it it changes the relationship from consultant-led to client-led. And what I mean by that is the, we turn around to our clients and say, I've allocated this day to do this piece of work. Prior to me doing, prior to that day coming, it is now your responsibility as the client to make sure I have every, informa- every piece of information I need in order to submit that application. So if I'm waiting on your architect for plans on that day, then I'm not going to be able to do that piece of work on, on that day. Yeah, It's amazing how much of a power exchange there is between client and consultant when the consultant is giving very firm directives to the client to say, I need you to, to hold up your end of the bargain. I need you to provide me the, the phrase I've, I've started to think about is actually from uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes, which is, uh, I cannot make bricks without clay. So I need the client to present me what I need on the day I need it. Right site, right time, right site, right development, right time. In order to be able to do their work. But getting that balance is critical. And it's something I actually encourage any consultant out there to get right. Otherwise, you are being hammered by inquiries from everywhere. Now, you mentioned talking about getting a lot of referrals and you've got 45 different cases on at the moment. How do you decide which ones to work with? A couple of different things apply. So we have what we call our safety checks. Safety checks are there to make sure that we are supporting the developments that will be supportable. So we do not accept every development into our caseload. We only accept the developments that we can get through based on policy, practice, and law. And then if they don't go through, it is something unforeseen that has come out of the woodwork. We have a 90% success rate at the moment. So we know this is working quite well. National average at the moment is about 80%. So some would say we're working 10% too hard. The 
so the safety checks are there to make sure that we are presenting the right site, the right development at the right time. And then we also have, it's not a preferred client type, but we like to be able to work with the client. There has to be a balanced relationship there. It's no good having a client who just shouts and says, no, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. That's not focusing on the why. That's not focusing on the how. That's just focusing on need. And a classic example of that is the client that says, I know you're saying, John, you can't get 18 houses on this site, but I've bought this site based on the fact I need 18 houses on this site. I now need you to go and get me 18 houses. That's a client we can't work with because their aspirations on the site are already fixed and they're fixed based on probably the wrong initial assessment. They bought a site based on an end development instead of working backwards and saying, right, what can you get on the site? Okay, how does that work with GDV? How does that work with bill costs? How does that work with my offer price? I haven't worked it backwards. They've worked it forwards from offer price. Okay, in order to make the offer price work, I need to get X amount on the site. And it doesn't work for me unless I get X amount on the site. It's those clients that we struggle with. And you're also advocating getting involved as early as possible in the whole process then. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think talking to professional planner is vital for any developer early on. And the reason for that is it is it's in the RTPI code to be fair. The RTPI code advocates its members to speak without fear, not in the best interest of the client, but in the best interest of the site based on their professional judgment, right? We work to develop the site and develop the best form of development that can go on that site. The, I don't know what the architectural code says. I'm gonna be brutally honest on that. But I have seen examples where architects will draw up based on client aspiration, but not give a guide as to actual viability. So I think the planning profession, certainly the chartered part of the planning profession, bound by that code of conduct, which says, no, you should be speaking fearlessly to your clients and saying, whether or not something will work or will not work is vital in the initial assessment stage of any site because what does the developer need to know first? Can I get planning permission for it? And you mentioned earlier we were talking about that particular home and that planners can influence lives and make a difference and change the landscape of the environment. How, how much is that a sort of a a line that you have a fine line to tread in not over development not building too much but also trying to satisfy the, the need that we do need more homes it's an incredibly fine line it's an incredibly fine line uh, the planners are always under pressure to build more and we had the shelter report saying that we need three million new affordable homes how are we going to do that you know, it, it's almost a case of we've lost sight of the why and we're straight into the, the how, to use Simon Sinek's Golden Circles model. 
So the planners are always treading an incredibly fine line between client need, country's need, and delivering a quality development that makes a difference. There are some developments that you look at and go, well, how on earth did that get planning permission? It looks awful. And there are developments in the 60s, for example, when planning just came about. You know, big tower blocks where you look at it and go, well, how did, how did they get planning permission for a monster skyscraper of concrete? And the answer is they were still riding that fine line even then. It's just the need for housing overweighed everything else inside of the planning balance. Now, as it is today, there's still a very high need for housing, incredibly so. But the planning balance is more tightly drawn to getting a quality product. And we've got a couple of commissions coming up, including a, a beautiful, the beautiful building, the beautiful Britain Commission, which is going to be looking at how the planning system can reinforce high quality architecture, high quality built environment, and make a difference once again. So finding those sort of high quality schemes that are worthy of planning permission and also looking for longevity because it's, you know, a lot of people are, are putting up homes that just aren't lasting. Mm. It's, it's it, Again, it's, it's a very frustrating sort of poor quality, seeing poor quality accommodation being built right now just because of this speed that, that's yeah. needed. But then you also celebrate internally, you mentally celebrate. So the, uh, in recent times, and I've seen, well, I mean, the biggest case is the Peterborough case. In, in Peterborough, uh, an incredibly poor quality uh, 25 square metre flat was condemned by the council's housing team because that flat was not deemed to be fit for human habitation. As planners, we've been trying to say the microflat doesn't work. How on earth is someone supposed to live in less than 37 square meters? We don't understand it. And to see something like that actually change, to see someone, a council actually step out of the woodwork and say, right, no, this far, no further, 25 square meters, no more. Uh, we're going to condemn this property. You actually celebrate that. And, you know, it's progressive change for the better. You also have to work carefully with your clients to say, can we do better? So the, I'll give you an example. It's going to be from my own development portfolio, to be fair. Raglan Gatehouse, which we've just submitted to Plymouth City Council, has been a really good example of where we've worked hard, very, very hard, to bring a historic building back into life that develops for super high quality dwellings. And by super high quality, I mean a two bedroom flat that is 95 square meters in size over two floors. I mean, stupidly big. We could have developed more intensively. We could have put six flats in that building to be fair would it been a, would it have been right to do so is a very different matter would it have been a high quality scheme no would there have been other compromises that we would have had to make on the site in terms of car parking layout bikes and bin storage which is always the last thing people think about and always the first things trip them up 
Yes, we would absolutely have had to make compromises. That was not the right development for that time. So it all goes back to the why instead of the how and the what. Mm, very much so. And it's something that I put purposefully in what we call our victory model. It's something that we're going to be rolling out to try and help developers focus their attentions more on how to navigate the planning system, the planning world. And the why in victory stands for you. Is the development you are proposing in line with your career objectives? Because development is a career. It's a career pathway. It's an art and a science, not just a, not just a thing. And you need to understand the why. You need to understand why are you in development? What are you doing? Are you there just to make money? Well, disappear off and do prior approvals on office to resi. You'll make lots of money. Lovely, lovely. And you'll create rubbish little pods and they will last 50 years and you won't have a legacy. Because right? And I'm taking 50 years because flats are designed for a 50-year shelf life, typically. Office buildings are designed normally for about 30-year shelf life. The... If you focus on the why, when you're dealing with your development aspirations, you build real legacy. You make real change. We're bringing back into life three listed buildings that are vacant and empty and without life, and two of them are degrading. And we're doing that because we know what our why is. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I know it's the shortest word, one of the shortest questions, but for me, the, the W stands for what you do, the H stands for how you do it, and the Y is you, and then the whole word Y is why you're doing it. So it's it for me, it makes sense. And I love I love the word why. And uh, I, I was I mentioned it in uh, one of my podcasts recently. You people stop questioning why they're doing things they just get caught in, up in the melee of a busy life and they they do get swept along by what other people are doing and how they're doing it and it's not necessarily always relevant for what they're you know for their lives and and why it's relevant for you, for you as an individual it's just really important so no I, I I totally get what you're doing and why you're doing it it's fantastic I think if you get the why right in your head if you define that early on then you get to a point, and hopefully I will get to that point soon. I'm not there yet, but hopefully I will get to that point soon where you no longer feel we have to compete in the world. You don't have to repeat what everyone else is doing because what you're doing is special and unique and personable to you. And then the other thing about it, Amy, and I think is so important, is that when you get the why right, suddenly you are speaking with passion with authority and with intelligence about your why and if you look at for example the success of companies like apple apple doesn't compete with microsoft it used to back in the 80s there was this whole argument between bill gates and steve jobs about who invented the graphical user interface steve said bill had nicked his idea Bill said, Steve had nicked his idea. Turn to the 90s, and they're not competing anymore. And the reason why they're not competing is that they have two very different whys. 
Microsoft took IBM's why. We're going to put a computer on every desk in the world. They did that. Well done. I've got one sitting right here. Apple did it differently. They said, we're going to change the world. We just make computers. Absolutely. And when the, the legacy outlives the, the, the sort of the immediacy of the shareholders, it's a long term goal that they've got, that they know that those people who are working for them are not actually going to ever almost get to that point because they know that other people are going to take it on. And everybody in that company understands what it is they are doing, what, what part of the jigsaw they are there for. Mm -hmm. They also then have that deeper understanding and that driver to be a part of that long-term legacy. And it is a difference between a lot of companies nowadays which are looking for that instant gratification. And they will literally crash and burn very quickly because they haven't got that core why we're up right absolutely absolutely on the barracks we know that is a four-year project and that's a four-year two years in planning that one's going to be four years in total mm -hmm. that's not an instant gratification it's very frustrating for those that are around me who want a bit more speed but it has to be taken at the pace that it is because it would be wrong for that building to do it at any other rate of speed. And that's because we're trying to do something special. Absolutely. I love that. That's brilliant. So as a business leader, what's next for you? I've, I've got some aspirations of my own. I want to continue doing what we're doing best. So the, planning company the planning part of the business is going to continue doing what it does and being exponents for good quality developments right side right development right time and we're still going to keep saying no to clients who are presenting us a site that doesn't work and that we don't feel that we can work with the education company or the education side of the business they're all separate companies but they're they're, they're all seen as part of one business. The education side of things is going to grow and expand and enhance. Uh, we've just done our, well, in February, we did our Goa planning boot camp. And we're going to Jersey next month, all being well, of course. But it looks like we're going to be able to do it, to go and do the UK-based boot camp. And again, that's disrupting, isn't it? Because everyone says, oh, no, 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 you can't do a boot camp inside the, the jurisdiction of the United Kingdom. Well, why not? You know, Jersey's part of the jurisdiction of the United Kingdom, just disappearing across the channel. You know, it's, it's 50 minutes in the air. You know, they, you buy and sell stuff with the pound. We can do that. So we're going to continue to do that, continue to disrupt. And then with developments, it's all focused on the developments we're doing with TPX development, which is part of the core business and its sister, Heritage England. Still cannot believe I managed to register a company called Heritage England. And you should see the logo. It's Heritage England. That's fantastic. Apparently, we actually had to get permission from the Queen. It took longer to get that company registered than normal and that's because we had to get permission from the crown to use the word england in the name and it went to historic england and it went to english heritage 
and they did not object because it also had to go to the immunity body. So we, we're all good. Do you think that's because of your background, the fact that you've been and your reputation? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't want to even postulate. I just take the view that we were able to differentiate ourselves from the immunity bodies. And by doing so, they were happy with us to continue using a, a name that is close to, but not related to, what they're trying to do. So how would anybody who's got a development that is potentially the right development on the right side at the right time, or somebody who would like to learn more um, from you, how would they get in touch with you, John? Uh, a few different ways. So we have, of course, my hobby, the Anti-Guru channel. There are some like 49 videos on there on a variety of different subjects. So go and have a look at that first. You get an idea of what we're about. And, and that gives steers on individual development types. And we're going to continue producing that. So go there first. Once you've, once you've been there and done that, then nip onto our website. It's tpexpert.org. Complete one of the inquiry forms. So there's either the free advice that we offer that we're doing during COVID-19 uh, to try and support the, com the country. And then there's the paid for advice, which is more in depth. Fill out one of those. You can find me on Facebook, normally languishing around the property expert community uh, group or any of the other groups that I attach to. Just tag me in. If you find me in the group, just tag me into a question. Nine turns out of ten, it'll be me or one of the guys that answers that question for you. And beyond that, property expert community life. That's every single month, and it's hosted on Zoom, and and I'm there with with the rest of the team talking through planning issues. Fantastic, and I'll make sure all of that gets put into the show notes for you. Final message for the audience today, John. What would that be? It's going to come back to this, right? Get your head right in terms of your why. I'm not just saying that because I'm on Amy's podcast. I'm saying that because if you don't get your head right, you'll be bumbling in the dark forever. You will never get it right. And if you never focus on why you're doing something, then every day is effectively just going into battle. Get your head right on your why, and then you will find that you no longer, and I will get there one day, you will no longer have to compete. You will no longer have to justify yourself because your actions, what you do, will be consistent with who you are. And if they're consistent with who you are, you will speak with authority, with passion, and the world will see you for exactly who you want to be. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star Apple podcast review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrowlandson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.